listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we have a regular policy and rhythm here at South Point of uh, giving our staff pastors a sabbatical every five years. And the root word of sab- sabbatical is sabbatic. I'm just kidding. It's Sabbath. Some are like, I didn't know that. Learn something new. Uh, uh, the root of that is, is Sabbath. Um, and we get that there from the Hebrew. And that just means rest. And so if you know Chris, which hopefully you do, um, you know that Chris works diligently, that he prays incessantly, uh, that he serves um, graciously, and that he responds to his texts quickly. Um, and I could probably throw some more adverbs in there, a whole lot quicker than I do. And some of y'all are like, amen. Uh, I'm not sure if I have the right number for you. <laughs> Somebody texted me this week. They said, is this still your number? <laughs> I didn't respond because at that point I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I'm like, who is this? Uh, sorry. Um, but yeah, so Chris, he, he, I don't know, he doesn't take very many actual real days off. He doesn't take very many vacations. Uh, he doesn't, he's here almost every single Sunday. Um, he has tons of vacation days that he's allowed to take. And the church is very gracious with us as pastors. And he doesn't take all of those. He hasn't taken all of those since he started. In fact, I saw him a few minutes ago. He, I looked over his shoulder because that's what I often do to people. Um, and I saw him showing uh, a video to Zane of Chris's very first day uh, on the job here full-time at South Point. And it was him cleaning rat poop out of ceiling tiles in the old Locust Grove building. That's why we started McDonough. Amen? And so, uh, and that's, that's just, that's what the job entails, is doing those types of things. This morning he's out here, um, he's, he's moving a, a shopping buggy out of the middle of the driveway. Um, he's picking up trash. Uh, but even more so than that, he's caring for the souls of our people. And we have a shared calendar. He's constantly meeting with folks for, pre- pre- for premarital counseling, for other counseling situations, for individuals. He has people to his home almost all the time. And so we as a church, we want to give our pastors, our staff pastors, a chance to recover, uh, to recuperate, to rest, to remove themselves a little bit from the constant physical, emotional, spiritual toll that that takes on on folks. Um, And so this past week, Chris came back from Kentucky, which if you were with that group of students, they went to Kentucky for about four days, and he's leading that that charge. He's still FaceTiming me as I'm on vacation just to check in and see how I'm doing. I'm like, man, I'm doing great, (laughs) you know? I'm right on the beach. Um, And so, uh, yeah, this this is what Chris does. And so his sabbatical begins tomorrow, it ends in about six weeks. You're like, well, didn't he have some time off last year? Like four, five, six weeks off? That was because of a, uh, a medical emergency that he had this t- that time off. This is a time for us to proactively invest in his life. And so I'm asking you, and we've already mentioned this before, this isn't news if you've been to a partner's meeting or uh, here some of the past few Sundays, uh, but I'm asking you as his people and as a family um, to provide some distance for him and Dory. And if you want to provide something else, just shoot him an encouraging text. One of the most encouraging texts that I can receive is, hey, I'm praying for you this morning. Thank you for the way that you serve our body. I, I love those texts. They go so far. And there's, there's so far distance in between those sometimes. I'm like, remember that text I got? <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Uh, 
If you've ever written me a, a thank you note or if your kid has, um, it's still on my desk. And there are some Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings, I have to rifle through those to be encouraged. That, that's the task of being a pastor. And that's what Chris has dealt with for this point, 11, 12 years. I don't know how long he's been putting up with me. Um, but so we want to give him that time off. So send him an encouraging text. Send him some money on Cash App or whatever he's got. Tell him to take Dory out on a date. I plan on doing that sometime, um, hopefully. I don't tell my wife. But uh, she's sitting down here. She knows. Uh, but just encourage, and, uh, encourage him, invest in him emotionally, tangibly, but give him some time off. Um, before he goes, and he's going to be staying here. I think he's doing announcements at the end. Uh, but can we just offer our appreciation to Chris for the way that he invests in us and pours into us together as a body? Thank you, Chris. Yeah, so give him a high five on the way out as you leave. Tell him thank you. Uh, I do want to, before we, um, we kind of get going with um, Luke, uh, I do want to celebrate the fact that Friday it did come down and Roe versus Wade has been overturned. That's, that's a huge victory for us. Amen. I say us not as a Christian community, not as a, uh, a certain denomination, not as Republicans, that that's what you agree. I'm, I'm saying that for us, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who value life and the Imago Dei, this is a victory for life. Now, like Chris prayed, there are some who are confused, who are hurt by these, those things, and we want to walk alongside of people. There's also, I saw so many posts, I haven't been on Facebook in almost, uh, or in over a year, uh, really. But I got on yesterday and Shana said, why are you reading so much? Why are you actually back on Facebook? And I said, because I wanted to see the reaction of Christians, of the church. I wanted to see how people were responding to this. And there seemed to be a lot of divisiveness or divisiveness, which is ironic that that word actually means being divided. Um, and there's a lot of divisiveness among Christians, among believers, among Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives and black and white and men and women and, and just all across the board. But we can be united and unified in the fact that we as a church have a responsibility to proclaim life. Life that was given to us and granted to us by God. And so we can rejoice in that. The other thing that I saw, though, was the fact that a lot of churches and pastors, uh, a lot of friends of mine, were talking about, okay, now the work begins, guys. Now the work begins, church. Here's the next step. Now that we are able to save these kids' live, lives, yeah, we have to go from uh, the womb to the tomb. If, you have to be, if you're going to be pro-life, make sure you're pro-life for all of life. I've had good friends tell me that. And I'm like, yeah, we are. Well, how? Because the church is kind of falling down in its job. But as I look around here this morning, we are a body of believers who every single Christmas for years have given thousands of dollars worth of resources to the Pregnancy Resource Center. We are a church the two guys you've had up here on stage with microphones so far are guys who have adopted children from women who could not afford those babies. And we have stories like that here in McDonough, uh, among the church, and in Locust Grove. We have families who love to adopt kids. We have tons of families who are fostering children. And so we as a church, there's part of me when I read those posts, I thought, yeah, we're already doing that. Let's keep patting ourselves on the back. I remember when I was a kid, my mom, she was a, a little more of a political activist, and, uh, and we would go around and, you know, pull up, 
you know, yard signs from the guys we didn't like, you know, and like in the middle of the night. And then we'd put our post there, you know, and it was kind of weird. But I remember even as a kid, like in the late 80s, it was just like, we've got to have Roe versus Wade overturned. And so for years, I've just heard that. And I feel like we've almost become complacent with that idea. Oh, yeah, it's never going to happen. But now it has. And so friends, church, we at South Point, I don't want to sit back and say, we're already doing these things. We're already adopting. We're already giving to the PRC. We're already fostering. We're already caring for kids. In just a minute, I want to have your kids come down and read a story to them. We love kids. I've got, I've got some ink or something on my shirt this morning that a kid was holding a marker and got on my shirt. We, we love kids here, and it was one of your kids. I'm not, it wasn't one of mine. I'm, I'm not going to tell you which one it was. I don't want to make you feel bad. But when I see kids, I love giving this, this, those little kids a hug. We love children here. But we're going to become more intentional with how we're using our time and our resources because there is going to be a growing need in our community, in our city, in our state, because abortion has been at least lessened as an option. It's been downgraded somewhat. And I would plead with you to continue praying. I'm really excited that it's overturned. But to some degree, this is we keep marching forward because our kingdom is not one that's political. Our kingdom is one that is spiritual and it is eternal. And it began with us being created imago Dei, in the image of God. It's going to end with us being one day in the kingdom and the presence of God for all time. And so we keep going there. And in the middle, we proclaim life, here and now, and life for all of eternity. Lastly, I'll say this. If, I, I know that there are folks in this, in this body um, who have participated in having to abort a child. And I know that breaks your heart. Maybe, maybe you have a story like that and I don't even know about it. Maybe you've had to give a kid up for adoption because you couldn't support it. Maybe there's something that in your past that you, you really regret. Can I extend mercy to you this morning from the cross and say that your sin is covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ? And so I hope that this is not, and my prayer for you is that even while it's like, oh man, celebration, that you don't run back to regret and be like, man, I, I wish I hadn't. I would, and, and maybe that's okay. Some of that regret is understandable. Like I get that. But can we take that regret, which is by the way, the strongest emotion, can we take that to the cross and remember that we are forgiven, that the blood of Christ covers every single mistake, every single sin, every bit of shame. And he offers hope and forgiveness and peace, no matter what you have done, no matter what decision or mistake you have made, no matter what view or position you have held in the past, no matter what you're wrestling with this morning, the blood and the finished work of Christ covers that. So I don't offer you an excuse. Well, now it's now it's, uh, now it's been overturned. Or my excuse back then is that it was available. Can I offer you an exchange? The great exchange of Christ's righteousness for your sin. So run to him. All right. If you are a kid, elementary age, younger, today is family worship. Uh, and so things maybe are a little more moving. Things are kind of you know, a little more creepily crawling around. So we do this at the last end of every single month. But if you are a kid, come on down. I'm gonna read you a story about the second coming of Jesus because that's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage that Chris just read to us from Luke chapter 21. This is coming from the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
Shannon last night or this morning, she said, you know, we have other kids' Bibles. I'm like, I know, but I just love this one and the words aren't too big for me. So I'm going to read this. You'll be able to see it, parts of it up on the screen if you want to kind of follow along. All right, kids, y'all ready? All right, y'all going to be quiet and listen, okay? Here we go. John was one of Jesus' helpers. He was old now and living on an island, which might sound nice, except it was a prison. The religious leaders put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus. But I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell, in a prison, on an island in the middle of an ocean could stop God's plan, do you? No way. One morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell. Jesus' eyes were bright, shining like the sun. I'm going to show you a secret, John. Jesus said, about when I come back. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Write down what you see so God's children can read it and wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake and what he saw was real. And one day it would all come true. I see a throne and on the throne is a king and the king is Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They are giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls. And everyone burst out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died so we don't have to. Our rescuer, all honor and glory forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down, defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful, walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where's the sun? Where's the moon? They are not needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from your eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like David Henry's, I'm just kidding, like thunder in the sky, <laughs> said, look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew, heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home again. And he knew in some mysterious way, that would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I am on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish, and this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, come quickly, Jesus. 
which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. John 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, For anyone who says yes to Jesus, for anyone who believes that what Jesus said, for anyone who will just reach out to take it, then God will give them this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life, to be who they really are, who God always made them to be, their own true selves, God's dear child. Because you see, the most wonderful thing about this story is it's your story too. To be continued. All right, thank you kids. Good job. I'll be back to see you folks. When I was a kid, uh, there were several things that my dad would say. Maybe some of y'all can resonate with this. Uh, if you know my dad, this would kind of make sense. Uh, he would often tell me, he'd say, get your heads out of the cloud. I'd say, get my head out of the clouds? What are, you, what are you saying? He said, yeah, just wake up and smell the coffee. He would always tell me because I had these fanciful ideas about having fun in life. I was always like, hey, let's just go have fun. No, no, you got to clean your room. I know, but then can we go have some fun? Let's just go do something. Get your head out of the clouds. You got to do work. You got to focus, right? Uh, one of the other things that he would say is, uh, I, would, I would ask, I would say, hey, can I, can I do this with my friends or whatever? And he would say, no. I would say, but what's wrong with it? He would say, that's the wrong question. What you should be asking is, what's right with it? I thought, well, I don't know, bro. What's right with watching the Bulls, you know? Like, who, is, is that okay, but I can't go, you know, play video games? But one of my favorite things, the things that resonates most loudly in my voice, and, and last night I texted my family on our group chat, and I said, hey, uh, what are some of the things that dad said when we were kids? Like, what's a recurring theme? And some of those things I can't tell you about. But one of the things that resonates uh, most loudly in my mind is when I played basketball all growing up, uh, and a lot of times I was playing point guard, and which is crazy uh, because then I had a growth spurt. And so uh, when I was playing point guard, though, uh, we would often be going on a fast break. And, you know, even in a gymnasium full of folks, uh, you can often, or on a field, you can hear your parents' voice. Like, you can just kind of pick it out of a crowd. It's like now if you're a parent, you, you hear something cry, you're like something, <laughs> like a baby. Um, then you, you're like, oh, that's my kid. Or somebody says, daddy, like, oh, you pick it out. Well, when I was playing basketball, I could always hear my dad's voice. It was on the court. It was loud, whatever. I could hear what he was saying. And more often than not, if we were going on a fast break, I could always hear him yelling, look up, look up. And what he was saying is, don't dribble the ball like this. You got somebody open down here. So look up, give them the ball. They're going to have an easy layup all the time. And so even now, as I'm playing with my kids, I'm saying, look up, get your head. This is where the action is happening. You watch good passers uh, from Magic Jordan to uh, Magic Jordan, Magic Johnson uh, to Steph Curry. You know, I, don't, I don't know basketball. Uh, you, look at, you look at those guys, John Stockton, they're always looking up. They're always seeing what's happening next. And so for us sometimes, we think the good life is right here, right in front of us. We're looking at what's better, what's next, what's happening right here. But I would like to compel you this morning to be reminded that the, the way to find hope and joy and meaning and significance and satisfaction in this life is by looking up to the second coming of Christ. This here is not all there is. If you're like, man, what, what is this? What's wrong? Or how can this be better? Or man, let's celebrate. Man, those things are great. But true, lasting hope can be experienced and found today. 
And you can have it forever by celebrating the coming of Christ. So we saw last week in this weird passage, I texted Caleb yesterday. I said, hey, man, I just listened to your sermon. Uh, we were driving home from the beach. I said, great sermon. Thanks so much for, for leading our people in preaching. He said, well, you've got the real fun passage tomorrow. I said, yeah, I know. So we're going to figure out and see what happens. But last week we saw that uh, in verses really 20 through 24 in chapter 21, if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, you can listen on the podcast, online, live stream, whatever. But we saw that the Jewish way of living, the sacrificial system was coming to an end in 70 AD. And Luke was foretelling that. It was coming completely to an end. If you go ask a Jew today, well, how do you sacrifice? They say, well, we don't. We just try to live real good. Because the temple is not there for sacrificial systems. They don't, I've been to, to Jerusalem. It's now controlled and ruled by Muslims. And so the Jews have nowhere to sacrifice because Jesus foretold that in 70 AD, it was going to come to an end. So we see the very end of verse number 24. We saw this last week. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Talking about here the nation of Israel. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so we moved here from the time of God's people being Israel to the time of God's people being any Gentiles who want to be brought into the family. So we've shifted. We see that from the time of the Jews, now we're in the time of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus was talking about, ending with verse number 24. He's saying the end of the time of the Jews is going to end in 70 AD. So now that's when Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he comes and we see this at the very end of uh, Matthew. We see the end of Mark. We're going to see the end of Luke. And we see the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. What does he say? He says, during this time of the Gentiles, go and reach the Gentile nations. Go to the ends of the earth because this is the time of the Gentiles. This is the time for those who were not born into God's Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite family. This is our time now. Their time has come to an end. Now it is today. That's why we as a church are committed to reaching the lost. That's why as Chris prayed this morning, we're praying for other churches. We're praying for missionaries who are around the world. We're praying for the lost among us. Even in this room, there may be some who don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And I would pray that you would repent of your sin this morning and fall upon his mercy afresh. This is the time of the Gentiles and this is a time for us as a church. The church age is what it's known as. So when we pick up in verse number 25, we're going to see that this is the time that is happening. That all of history is going to come to an end. That the age, the time of the Gentiles is going to stop. In the same way that the time of the Jews came to an end. The time of the Gentiles is going to come to an end when Christ returns in all of his glory. Between now and then, our mission of the church is the same. We exist to equip the family of God for the mission of God. His mission is now going through this Gentile, this church age. We know this will happen. Caleb mentioned this last week. But the word will is in this chapter over 30 times. So we know for certain, even if we can have different perspectives on this chapter and it's kind of confusing, it's like, ah, we don't really know what's going on. Some commentators said, I think it's verse number 32 is the most controversial verse in all the New Testament. I'm like, great, glad I'm preaching it today. Uh, should have preached it next week, you know, when everybody's going to be at the beach for 4th of July. Uh, but we're preaching it today. And it's, it's really kind of strange and confusing. But we know one thing for certain is that Jesus Christ is going to come back again. His words are certain. So we pick up in verse number 25, and this is talking about Christ coming again. 
So we see here the different responses to Christ's return. Verse number 25, and there will be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. Now notice in verse number 26, here is how people with no hope respond to that destruction of the world. Verse number 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is one of Jesus' favorite ways. He does it uh, over 80 times that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And we get that from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I started, I've started studying Daniel, looking forward to what we're going to be discussing in the fall as we walk through the book of Daniel. I'm really stoked, and I'm a little scared. But he gets that there, the Son of Man is going to be coming on the clouds with all of his glory. He's here talking about the second coming of Christ. Now, notice what he says in verse number 28. Now, here's how we, who have faith in Jesus Christ, should respond to that. Now, when these things, these end times begin to take place, here's the response to Christ's return. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We're going to respond to Christ's return one of two ways, either with fear, with fainting, with foreboding. Oh, my goodness. When I look up, there's something happening in the future that I don't know about. I don't know how to respond. Or we're going to look at Christ's second coming with hope. Come quickly, Lord. We are anxiously with anticipation, awaiting his return. So wherever you are in life, whatever life has thrown at you, whatever tragedy has happened to you, either this morning, this past week, this month, this year so far, the past couple of years, wherever tragedy has struck, we know that we have a hope secure, like an anchor that rests in the bottom of the sea, that no matter how the waves are being tossed, no matter how hard the wind is blowing, our anchor is Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to his second return. We know there's something better on the other side when all things are gonna be made right, when there is no more sin, when there is no more sickness, when there is no more shame, when there is no more temptation, when there is no more death. So friends, look up. Secondly, we see not just the response to Christ's return, but we see, beginning in verse number 29, we see the assurance of Christ's return. And he tells them this parable. He said, look at the fig tree. And then he says, well, look at all the trees, honestly. He said, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. He says, so when you see these, this tribulation, these trials, now notice he doesn't get into the details of these things. We were watching a, a documentary last night, as we often do uh, when sports are not on. Uh, we were watching a documentary. It was about um, the fundamentalist church of Latter-day Saints. And they were talking about how the prophet there was uh, foretelling that the world was going to come to an end in Salt Lake City when the Olympics were there in 2002, something like that. Well, guess what? The Olympics came and went, and guess where we are? Still here. Guess where those Mormons are? They're not there anymore because they moved away because they were scared of the destruction. But did Jesus come back and destroy? No, he didn't. So Jesus here is not saying, here's exactly how you're going to know. Here's the date, here's the time. Because Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he doesn't know. He's waiting for the Father to say, all right, the time's here. Go round up your children. 
In the meantime, we look forward to that. So he says here, you're going to see these things. You know that the kingdom of God is near. When he's talking about these things, so it's like, okay, well, what, what is that supposed to mean? He's actually referring back to verses 20 through 24. When the Jewish time has come to an end, when the temple is destroyed, so in 70 AD, when that's destroyed, know that we're entering into a new age and my return is imminent. Be ready for it. It can happen at any time. So here's how we should view history. I was in Alaska several years ago and I was there for a couple months leading worship uh, with a band. And we went out and when we were there in the summer, it was just daylight, 24 hours a day. Like it was just wild. You got at two o'clock in the morning and it looked just like it does outside. You're like, this is off the chain. We had to black out our windows. But I remember one night, we, uh, one night probably like 11 o'clock, we went to the beach, okay? It's crazy. So we go there and we look off in the distance and we see a mountain range. And I asked one of the guys that we were with, I said, how far away are those mountains? He said, how far away do you think they are? I said, I don't know, five or six miles. He said, those are 80 miles away. I said, that is incredible. He said, if you, if you look, you can see, like, that was the beginning of the mountain range. And mountains are enormous, not like, you know, Stone Mountain, which you can see from, like, 500 feet. But, the, I mean, just so far away, and you see this mountain range. Now, I could see the tops of the mountains. That was about it. I could see maybe the front of the first one. Other than that, I could just see the mountain peaks behind it. I don't know, I didn't know what happened in between those peaks, so we view history the same way. When we look at, when we use prophetic literature, we're just looking at these mountain peaks. And Caleb said last week, we don't know exactly what the timing of these things are, but we see the peaks of these mountains and we know that it's going to happen. So if here's a mountain peak, here's the destruction of the temple, and here's Christ's second coming, you're standing over there. You can see these two things happening. But the valley that's in between these two mountain peaks, we don't know how vast it is. We don't know the topography. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the span. All we see is, man, I see this peak and I see that peak. Man, Jesus talks about the end of the Jewish age. He talks about the end of the Gentile age. He's coming again, but we don't know the exactness of what is happening in between those two time periods. Does that make sense? So as we read this, we're standing again, and it's already not yet, and that's why we need God's grace. Amen? because we don't know exactly what that looks like. Verse number 32, make this your life verse. Put it on a coffee mug, said no one ever. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Until how much has taken place? All. All of what? Good question. You're like, you're supposed to, that's why we're paying you. I know. Uh, but even the guys who get paid a lot more than me, they're like, yeah, we don't know exactly what he's talking about. Is he talking about all of verses 20 through 24? I think here in the context, he's talking about when he's coming again, again, that's the context of what he's talking about, when all of these things have taken place. But we have to go back and look at when he says, this generation, when this generation, and so far we've seen that phrase, this generation, it's been used eight times. It's always used in a negative sense. He's talking about the sinfulness of man. But here's what he's not talking about primarily. He's not often or always talking about just the generation, literally. He's not just saying, okay, you millennial generation, okay, you boomers, this generation. What he's saying is this type of people. Not so much of a time period of people, but more of a sinful type of people. Now, again, this is where it's like, well, which one is he using there? Man, I don't know. All it says is this generation. But we have two primary options. Now, I, I can pontificate on my thoughts on this if you want me to, and that's fine. 
over cheeseburgers at Five Guys not this morning. But we have two primary options. First option is this, is that if he's talking about the people immediately they're listening to him, all these things, when and your generation is going to see it. A generation lasts about 40 years. So he could be talking as he's, as he's speaking here in about 40 years. Guess what's going to happen? The destruction of the temple. So he could be saying, this generation, when you see all of these things in the next 40 years, when the destruction of the temple begins to take place, then be ready for my return. You're going to see me coming on clouds. Here's what's crazy. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 10, we see, uh, we see God talking about him leaving his people. And the historian Josephus wrote at the end of the first century is that during the destruction of the temple, based on hundreds of eyewitness accounts, what they saw are clouds come across the sky. Now, this is not in the Bible, okay? This is just for free. Don't title them this. this, this so, but Josephus said, and he was, he's a trusted historian, he said that during that time of the destruction of the temple, clouds came across the skies and there was a voice that hundreds of people heard that said, we depart thence. We depart thence. Now, what some theologians and historians would say is that was God saying, I'm removing myself, my presence from the Jewish people. And I'm going to begin this Gentile age. But I'm removing myself from my literal physical presence here in the temple and the tabernacle with my people. So if he means there are this generation, the people that I'm looking at, then that makes sense because the presence of God left. The second option that we see, if he's talking about this generation, he could be talking about evil folks to which we would be encompassed in that. Now, I don't know which one of those he's talking about. The first one's really interesting. I probably would like put a few of my chips, a few more chips on this side, um, just because I think that's probably where it is. I think he's talking about when this evil generation, notice what he says here. Uh, Truly I say, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Because in verse number 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So at some point, he says, this generation, this evil us, we have something to look forward to. And that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Either way, here's what we know. If you take the first one or the second one, or if you take a third one, or if you want to make your own up, what, here's what we do know. What we do know is that in verse number 33, my words will not pass away. We know that the word of Jesus Christ is true and that it's authoritative and that it's trustworthy. Jesus Christ is coming back again. So if he's talking about when he left the people in, uh, in 70 AD or if he's talking about when he's coming back in the future, we know that his words are true, that he is coming back again. No matter what's happening in life, the fact that we can have confidence in, in Christ's words, I think sometimes, sometimes we take this for granted. Or maybe the things of life um, blind us to the word of God or we begin looking down rather than looking to the word of God or it becomes blurry or we become reading, I know, I know those stories, I get that. We can have confidence even in this life no matter what happens that Jesus' words are faithful and true and that we can look forward to his second coming. So look to his word. We can live with confidence. Then we see the third thing here, not just the response of Christ's return, we see the assurance of Christ's return, but we see our preparation for Christ's return. In verse number 34, this is a loaded verse. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, 
and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now, he says here, with dissipation and drunkenness. Literally, that word dissipation means to be hungover. He says, so don't become so, in, in the morning you're hungover from the night before, and then that night it's like, well, I'm going to go back to the cares of this life. Then the next morning you're hungover, and then that night you begin drinking again. You're like, oh, well, yeah, I don't, I don't struggle with that anymore. I don't drink enough. Like, whatever. He's using this as an analogy for whatever you are concerned with, whatever, whatever evil thing you are pursuing, don't look for your meaning and joy in the life here today. Don't look for that. So when he talks about dissipation and drunkenness, don't try to find your meaning here. Nobody ever looked at pornography. Nobody ever ran up a credit card debt that they could not pay. Nobody ever flirted with a coworker that wasn't their wife or their husband. Nobody ever cheated on their taxes while their hearts were set expectedly on the return of Christ. So the way we fight sin is by setting our hearts, by looking up. Set your hearts on the return of Christ. But notice what else he says here in verse number 34. He says, watch yourselves against that, but also the cares of this life. Now, the cares of this life, he, literally that phrase means not bad things like drunkenness and dissipation, but he's saying even the things that may be good. Friends, the greatest threat to us as believers is not the government. It's not another nation. The greatest threat to us is not persecution or the education system or our boss. But the greatest threat to us are daily distractions that take our hearts and our focus away from being rooted in the truthfulness of Christ's imminent return. So when you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about? Maybe you're not hungover. Hopefully not. But what are you thinking about that day? How are you planning your day? And that night when you're going to bed, how are you reflecting on the day? And how are you preparing for the next day? Maybe you're not drunk or drinking or getting drunk but what's consuming your mind? What cares of this life? Because Jesus says here to watch, to be prepared. He says to invest all of your time, your money, your resources, your passions into the kingdom. Friends, we're, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. So rather than trying to figure out how does this line up, be ready, be watchful. Look ahead, verse number 36. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape the trap that he talked about in verse number 34. Escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The best preparation in this life for the next is prayerfulness. Is prayerfulness. How are our prayer lives? I'm putting myself into that category. How are we praying? What are we praying for? Are, are we consumed with the cares of this life? Or are we concerned with the coming day? Which one are we consumed with? And then lastly, look at verse 37. It's just like this, this little bit of narrative, the way that Luke rounds these couple of verses out, but it's important. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now remember, we're on Tuesday, of Passion Week. In just a couple of days, Jesus is going to be put on the cross, crucified. 
Here, what does he do? He continues teaching. He doesn't say, man, I've, you know, that's, that's when my time is done, my mission is done then. So let me, let me go make sure I've caught up on all. Uh, let me go rewatch, you know, season three of Stranger Things so that I can be really prepared for season four. Praise God. Let me go rewatch yet again another, all the reruns of The Office or Parks and Rec. Guess who's preaching to the choir? <laughs> he says, no, while I have today, I'm going to be committed to the mission of God. And Jesus knew what was about to happen. What's about to happen? He's saying, stay awake in prayer. What's about to happen? The disciples are about to fall asleep during prayer. Jesus is about to be betrayed by, G by Judas, denied by Peter, doubted by Thomas. But while he has today, he's doing about, going about his father's business. While he has today. So friends, today, are we going to be looking up to Christ's return, using all of our resources for the sake of his kingdom? Here are five truths I want us to walk away with this morning. Five things I, I think that we, can, that we can draw from the text, and all these things are going to end up on the screen simultaneously at the end if you want to take a picture of them. I know sometimes we like to write all these things down if you're a note taker like me, but these will be up here. Feel free to write them down. Feel, feel free to not. Either way is fine. But here's what I want us to see. First, if we let our hearts become distracted by ostensibly good things, they will become spiritually malignant. You're like, well, those are some big words. Uh, yeah, I couldn't think of better ones. So if our hearts become distracted by basically good things, overall good things, they will become spiritually malignant. In other words, those are going to be the things that begin to eat at us as we build our own kingdoms. So what would distract you from missing him today? What would distract you from missing Christ's return today? What are you looking for that's better? What are you looking for that's next? What is consuming you? What are you giving yourself to? Are you giving yourself to next week's vacation? Are you giving yourself to uh, your, your kids' schooling? Are you giving yourself to scrolling on your phone? Are you giving yourself to entertainment? By the way, none of those things necessarily bad. None of those things inherently evil or sinful. But are you giving your soul to those things? To the point where they are eating away at you. Are you preparing your children for eternity and for Christ's return? Now this one hits home with me. I've got two boys sitting right here on the front row. Are you preparing your kids for Christ's return and for eternity? Or are you passing along this soul-eating virus of short-sightedness? Secondly, the temptation as we wait for that final day is to begin to live as if Jesus is not actually coming back. We, we settle in here. We begin to make our home here as if this is all there is. One of the kids, we were at the beach this past week, and one of them said, they said, what's today? Is today Tuesday? I said, no, today is Friday. They said, wait, what? This is our last day at the beach? I said, yeah, enjoy it while you can. Because we thought, man, I've got, I've got the rest of the week to hang out with my cousins and to be at the beach. No, no, no. The time is coming when dad's going to walk in and say, pack up, it's time to go. Maybe kids, maybe y'all can relate to this too. Do your parents ever tell you to go clean your room? And let's say you have an hour. 
because it should take you 10 minutes, but they're gracious. So they say, go clean your room. And you go in your room, and what do you do? You get distracted by Legos or Barbies or a tablet or something else. Then your parents walk in an hour later. All right, how's the room? Wait, what? Oh, wait, I forgot that you were coming back to check. I got consumed with these things. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Or are we faithfully in obedience pursuing the kingdom of God with the time that he's given us? Thirdly, the return of Christ is the grand finale of the gospel message. We we often think, hey, what is the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. Praise God he did. What did he do before that? Well, he was born to a virgin. What did he do before that? Well, he gave us the sacrificial system. What did he do before that? He created us in the image of God. What did he do after he was put in the ground? Where he rose again. What did he do then? He continued to teach. What did he do then? Then he ascended. What is he doing now? He's the mediator between us and God the Father. And what's he going to do? Come again and call us home to himself. That's the grand finale. The fact that we are redeemed because of his finished work on the cross. We are purchased through his blood. We are adopted into his family. But we're looking forward to the end of a story that's not going to have a sequel. It's about as good as it gets. It's not going to be on a cliffhanger. We don't know exactly when it's going to be here. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But it's going to be fantastic. You're not going to want to rewatch the movie either. Because you get to bask in all of his glory for all time. Next, you don't know the future about your life, but you do have today. You do have today. I was thinking this, um, just this morning about uh, friends and family members who have had diagnoses of uh, terminal illness. Yesterday, there was a lady, uh, her name was Diane Lanier, and her funeral was yesterday. She was in her 80s, and so nobody went to their funeral, and they were like, we had no idea that death was imminent for Diane Lanier. Now, she was a, a family friend of ours. Uh, when I was a, a kid in the 90s, uh, she would babysit me and my siblings. And she was awesome, and she still knew my kids' names and what they were interested in. My parents went to her funeral. But nobody was shocked. Nobody was flabbergasted at the fact that Diane Lanier went on to heaven to be with Jesus forever. Because it was like, well, she was older. She'd been sick for a couple of years. It just kind of made sense. But this morning I got a text that last night at 9.15, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, but a good friend of mine, Ray Gentry, um, he's in his 60s. His daughter passed away last night. She was 39 years old. 13 days after turning 39, passed away. Now, she had cancer. So you're like, oh, well, it was, yeah, she knew it was coming. She had been in hospice for a couple of weeks. But still at 39 years old, that's, that's younger than, uh, or that's, yeah, that's younger than a lot of us in this room. I'll be 39 next year. And then I think back to uh, the best man in my wedding. His name was DJ. He died from cancer uh, in his late 30s. I think of my best friend in high school. You're like, I don't want to be his best friend anymore. I don't blame you. <laughs> Chris is trying to get out of it. Uh, but my best friend in high school, his name was Stephen Elrod. He died in a car accident in his early 20s. I think of my neighbor a couple of weeks ago. His name is Nas. 41 years old, dropped dead of a heart attack. No physical problems, nothing wrong with him. I I know that in our body, we have even children who have complications with life, where life could end at any moment because they're not expected to make it. And it's like, man, so sorry for them. Good thing I have the rest of my life ahead of me. 
are we using today as if it is our last day? Because, friends, it may be. It may be. Don't prepare your children for their future at the neglect of their eternity. Don't fall for the lie or the illusion that you have more days than April, than Nas, than Stephen Elrod, than DJ, than Diane Lanier. Don't fall for the illusion that you have more days than them. Because if you do, you might just miss Jesus. You still have today. Lastly, no one will be found accidentally faithful on that day. You're not going to stumble into faithfulness. Oh, oh Jesus. I, oh, yeah, I have been faithful. <laughs> Praise God. Good thing he grades on a curve. Oh, man. He says here to remain awake, careful, deliberate, and prayerful so that you can stand on that day. We watched a movie this past week on Netflix just came out, it talks about, the, uh, I, I don't know if I can recommend it or not, but uh, it talks about the life of a, a, a basketball scout and how he has to analyze, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Uh, the movie's called Hustle, all right? So it's got Adam Sandler, I can't recommend it, but uh, he talks about how he has to recruit talent, has to, how he has to go find talent for NBA players. And he finds this um, this guy, I think he's up in New York, and he finds this young kid, an incredible basketball talent. Well, he takes him to go play. It's not based on a true story, but a lot of it is very accurate when you talk about uh, the life of a basketball scout. He takes him to play against some really good NBA prospects, and he just can't really hang. He can't really hang in there mentally. So guess what Adam Sandler does with this guy? He says, we're going to get up every single morning at 4 a.m., and you're going to start running. Then we're going to go uh, practice on all these drills, dribbling drills, shooting drills. Uh, at one point, my wife said, why is that giant tire rolling across the basketball floor? I said, so he can practice his passing through this tire. And you're like, yeah, but he's already good enough. Why does he need to keep practicing? So that one day he can stand on the NBA platform and be drafted by the Celtics. Because it wasn't like, hey, I, uh, I'm good enough at basketball. He was good enough at basketball to keep a construction job. And he was incredible. But he had to work diligently, constantly, for weeks on end, so that at the end of that process, he could say, yes, now I can stand. Now I've reached my potential of what I'm supposed to be doing. He worked. He stayed awake. Here's what I'm not saying, friends. I'm not saying work hard for your salvation. I'm not saying work hard for intimacy with God. Work hard for his love or his mercy or his grace or his compassion. But what Jesus is saying is that we get to work from a place of intimacy, of love, of mercy, of grace, of compassion. We get to work from that place of being in relationship with God the Father. And then we will stand with him one day. We're not working for those things, but we work diligently from a place of rest. We work diligently from a place of being accepted. 
I had to be reminded this morning in my office, uh, even from a few minutes alone in prayer, I had to be reminded by the Spirit that I'm not getting up here for the acceptance of y'all. That's my default. That's my, my screensaver is I want to find the acceptance of people in the way that I preach. And some of y'all are like, yeah, good thing you're not working for that this morning. But I had to be reminded from the Spirit that I am approved of by God the Father. And so now I get to tell you about the fact that he is coming again, that he is the Lion of Judah who has conquered sin and the grave and shame and my weakness and my failure, that he is the lamb that was slaughtered, whose blood covers me so that when the father sees me, he doesn't say, keep working a little bit harder. You're almost there. He says, no, you get to work hard. You get to proclaim the excellencies and goodness of Jesus Christ, who's coming again. That's all we have. So work from that place this morning, that place of faith. That's the difference between religion and true faith. Religion says work for this. True faith says Jesus has done this. He's accomplished it. Brother and sister, or non-brother and non-sister, he is identified with you in life and in death and resurrection and ascension. And one day the kingdom of God is coming back here and he is going to rule and reign for all of eternity. And I would plead with you this morning, don't look for your identity somewhere else, but place your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. His body was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you. He identified with you so that you could identify with him for all of eternity. There is hope. There is life. In that, we have the opportunity to rejoice. In that, we have the chance to look up. It's only by faith. So friends, during this time of communion, this is a meal that we enter into as those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ I would ask you to respond with rejoicing in what Christ has done. But I would also ask you to examine your life of those areas where you are, if you were standing before Jesus on the last day, you would look back and say, man, I really regret all that time that I spent on fill in the blank. Examine your life this morning while you have today. What areas of your life would be regrettable on that last day? And let's repent of those things. And they may be good things, but those good things may become God things and therefore ultimate things. Set those things aside for the sake of living for Christ. He invites you into a better life than this here right now. We get the chance to look up to rejoice. If there is sin between you and a brother or a sister, go and repent to that brother or sister this morning. Let's be reminded of the finished work of Christ. His body was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that we could be accepted before the Father. We have stations set up around the room. This is for us who are believers, who are in good standing with any local body. And this is our chance to repent, to rejoice this morning. So family, you're invited to join me in this meal of communion. 